This holiday season, please consider supporting the Cato Institute and specifically the Cato Daily Podcast. Visit cato.org slash podcast sponsor to get started. If you support Cato with a donation of $1,000 or more, I'll gladly give you a shout-out on the podcast, or you can designate someone else to receive that benefit along with all the other benefits being a Cato sponsor. This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, December 15th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. The voters of the Electoral College have cast their votes in state capitals. And in case it wasn't already clear, Joe Biden won the presidency. I spoke with Cato Institute Chairman Bob Levy about the push for a national popular vote to alter how future presidents will be chosen, the constitutional hurdles to that plan, and the ongoing and increasingly bizarre claims by Donald Trump that he, in fact, won the election. We spoke earlier today. The process of of choosing a president is not that very well understood by the public. So uh, how is it that we choose our presidents in the United States of America? Well, the, the election this year, of course, was set by federal statute and occurred on November the 3rd. And although the candidates' names are on the ballot in each state, we actually vote for electors who in turn are pledged to vote for each candidate. And then the electors meet and they vote. And that happened yesterday, December 14th, uh, in each state. And then those ballots go to Congress and Congress finalizes the outcome that will occur on January 6th of next year. And of course, the final step is that the president is inaugurated uh, on January the 20th. So that doesn't seem too complicated. Uh, and in normal years, the the fact that electors meet and uh, cast their votes for president in state houses across the country. That's normally not very controversial. Uh, this year, of course, it was uh, very closely watched. How are electors chosen? Well, Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution provides that each state shall appoint uh, electors in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. And that's true as long as the process is established before the election takes place. And all 50 states have opted uh, to choose electors by popular vote. Now, Congress can challenge the electoral outcome in one or more states, but presumably Congress won't do that if the vote count in the state has been certified by state election officials. And that takes place at the latest six days prior to the meeting of the Electoral College. And since the Electoral College met on the 14th, that would have been December the 8th, the deadline for certification. This year, uh, all of the vote counts except Wisconsin's were certified. And even in Wisconsin, there was no indication that there was any basis uh, for a congressional challenge. So January 6th is when uh, Congress counts the votes. It will be presided over by Vice President Mike Pence. Um, what if you're somebody who is broadly, uh, who is a member of Congress who broadly believes that the president had this election stolen from him, what are your options? Well, the Electoral Count Act, uh, that's an act passed back in 1887, requires Congress to uh, consider any papers that purport to be certificates of the electoral votes. So if there's only one slate that's been certified, Congress will accept that slate. And that's what's uh, going to happen probably on January 6th. If there were multiple slates and none of them had been properly certified, then Congress would have to choose. 
Congress also may have to choose if one member of the House and one member of the Senate objects to a slate. But if there are no grounds for objection, uh, that should be just a procedural matter that uh, doesn't raise any problems. Uh, when Congress chooses, both houses have to agree uh, on which slate uh, they're going to select. If there's no agreement, then the Electoral Count Act says that Congress has to select the slate that's been approved by the state executive. In most states, that means the governor. Uh, and if there's still no resolution after that, uh, then none of the electors would be counted from that state. This year, by the way, all uh, in all the contested states, uh, the slates were approved uh, by the governor. So again, it's very unlikely that anything unusual is going to happen on January 6th. There are a lot of people, and I think this election has has uh, sharpened a lot of these claims about the Electoral College. People say it is a failure. Uh, people say that it is insufficiently democratic. That is, we've had two elections in, uh, sorry, three elections in the last uh, 20 years where the popular vote winner did not win the presidency. What, what, what do you think of this push for a national popular vote? Well, it's true that in the, United, in the U.S., majorities rule, but you know there are limits to that. Uh, for example, the Constitution sets out certain unalienable rights, such as free speech, that majorities can't take away. Um, the founders, what they instituted was a plan whereby in limited areas, uh, majorities are entitled to rule because they're authorized to do so by the Constitution. So we don't take a vote to determine, for example, if you're allowed to exercise your uh, religious beliefs and the federal government can't compel uh, a state, California, let's say, to criminalize marijuana, even if there's a supermajority of Americans nationwide that want marijuana to be illegal. Uh, so the Electoral College is just one more exception to this majority rule. It's set forth in the Constitution. It's designed in part to buttress uh, the institution of federalism. And federalism is dual sovereignty, power divided between the federal and state government. So it serves as a check on both of them to prevent them from violating the rights of uh, individuals. So, and the Constitution, as we know, would not have been ratified if the least populous states and their voters had not been protected against dominance by the most popular states. And there's nothing of late that has changed that dynamic. Uh, I spoke with Emily Conrad. She wrote a book about the Electoral College, about specifically faithless electors, but she walks through a lot of the details of uh, the Electoral College process. And um, she says that if it, there are relatively small changes that states themselves could make, that is assigning electoral votes to um, by congressional district. What do, what do you think of that idea? Well, Maine and Nebraska uh, sign uh, sign electoral votes by a congressional district. They're the only uh, the other only ones that uh, that do that. Um, Forty eight states uh, serve on a, a winner take all system, um, and Maine and Nebraska have two electoral votes that go to the winner of the statewide um, majority, and uh, then the rest of the votes are allocated by electoral. Uh, district. I personally think it's a great idea, and I'd like to see uh, more states uh, practice that. Um, but I think there's little chance that that's uh, going to happen uh, anytime, uh, anytime soon. Um, under winner-take-all, candidates ignore states when they have little chance of winning the state's popular vote, even if there are districts within the state uh, that favor the candidate. 
you can you can fix that by using the Maine and Nebraska uh, alternative um, district by district. But that would encourage the candidates to campaign even in those states uh, that they might have ignored uh, because they were so far behind in the statewide polling. The, the risk, by the way, is that you know presently with a winner take all system, we're not bothered about gerrymandered districts, um, at least in presidential elections. But if we introduced the Maine and Nebraska alternative, where the electoral votes are awarded by district, then gerrymandering becomes an issue. And we would have to fix that problem. That's a very serious problem. I suggest we do so by having independent commissions that set the districts. But so far, not all the states do that. So how would uh, the Maine and Nebraska model, how does that differ from this uh, national popular vote interstate compact, which, which some states have signed on to? This is an attempt to institute a national popular vote without amending uh, the, const- uh, the Constitution. So assume that a state enacts a law that gives all of its electoral votes to the presidential candidate who wins the national popular vote, regardless of what the outcome is within the state itself. And then assume further that the state law says that the law is not going to be effective unless enough other states pass the same law that would yield a total of at least 270 electoral votes, which is the number needed to win the presidency. So that scheme would be perfectly valid under Article 2 of the Constitution, which gives the states great leeway in deciding how their electors are going to be uh, appointed. It would force a majority of electoral votes to be cast for the winner of the national popular vote, all without amending the Constitution. Uh, So far, I believe there are 15 states and D.C. that have a total of 196 electoral votes that have adopted uh, that statute. Uh, So there are 74 electoral votes uh, yet to go to reach the 270. What do you think about that as a practical matter, though? Well, I think both as a practical and as a constitutional matter, it's not going to happen. The Constitution imposes a couple of major roadblocks. Uh, One is the compacts clause uh, in Article 1, Section 10, which says no state shall, without the consent of Congress, enter into any agreement or compact with another state. So that clause says that there must be congressional consent. Now, maybe it's not required uh, for every single interstate commerce a compact, you can imagine some procedural things that wouldn't uh, require congressional consent. But at least for those compacts that compromise this dual state-federal scheme that was envisioned uh, by the framers. Uh, And if congressional consent were required, then the senators from the states that didn't sign the compact, uh, particularly the, the less populated states, would likely withhold consent because uh, they would have de- significantly diminished electoral clout if this compact were to become uh, uh, operative. In so many states, uh, mostly states that uh, the president uh, thought he had a chance of winning and perhaps believed that there was some argument that could be presented to uh, judges that would carry the day, uh, he challenged the election. And uh, as of this recording, still hasn't said that, uh, admitted rather that he lost this election. Courts, secretaries of state, governors, uh, legislatures, to the to the extent that they've been involved, they've all pretty much, it seems, done their jobs. Is that sufficient 
I mean, I realize that that we're moving ahead with uh, with Joe Biden likely becoming the next president. But I guess, what do you think of the this process as it has played out? Well, you know, Trump wants the states to reject the Biden electors and to choose a Trump slate uh, instead. That didn't happen yesterday. Uh, there's some dispute about whether the legislature is even empowered to do that. Uh, the reason they wouldn't be is because they never they didn't establish that process prior to the election. They can't change the rules after the election uh, is is over. Um, now, the infirmities that Trump alleged were concerned uh, considered by uh, by more than 80 judges and by election boards and governors and secretaries of states across the board, both political parties and not a single authority determined that there were some extraordinary irregularities that might have um, Change the results of the uh, electoral uh, mix. And in fact, the president's own uh, cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, uh, and that's overseen by the Department of Homeland Security, released a statement saying that the November 3rd election was the most secure uh, in American history and that there was no evidence voting system deleted or lost votes or changed votes or was compromised. And even uh, Attorney General I get former Attorney General Barr, um, as of yesterday, uh, concluded that he hadn't seen fraud on a scale that would have affected a different uh, outcome uh, in the election. So I think as a uh, uh, practical matter, Trump had no leg to, uh, to stand on. And then there's also this, this other constitutional uh, provision, which is uh, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment that says when the right to vote for the presidential elections, electors is denied uh, to the citizens, then the basis of representation in Congress is reduced in proportion. So, you know, that provision suggests that if any state, after an election, repudiated the results of the election and denied its citizens the right to vote, then that state might lose uh, its, its congressional representation. Um, I, I say might because uh, you know the the court might consider that the legislative override was really a one-time occurrence and wasn't the permanent policy of the state. But nonetheless, if that occurred after an election had already transpired, I think there's a risk that this provision would be invoked. It never has been repealed. Its purpose uh, was to uh, prevent states from denying the vote to African Americans. Uh, that was obviated by the 15th Amendment a couple of years later, which gave all races uh, the right to vote. But Section 2 of the 14th Amendment is still in the books. So it might have been invoked if um, after an election, some state legislature uh, stepped up and said, no, we're going to ignore those results. Bob Levy is chairman of the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.